everybody, and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. My name is Paul, and I am your host. And today I'm super, super happy and excited to, to introduce my guest. His name is Jeff Scott Soto, who you have definitely heard singing, even if you don't recognize the name in some for, form or the other. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome, Paul. I think I owe you uh, 20 bucks for that comment. I mean, <laughs> it's funny you say that because it's I, I battle with this all the time. I talk about this all the time with people, um, whether it be fans or, or business people, you know, people in the industry, et cetera. How I talk about Jesus. I'm going on 40 years, four decades of being in this business, and I, ba I barely cracked a stone. I barely touched the surface of the of world domination. I mean, everybody that gets in the music, right. you naturally think you feel and you naturally want and and yearn for that desire for to be a household name. You want the world to know who you are and your achievements and everything that you've been blessed to share with the world. Right. And it's uh, when, when you're, when you're doing it for decades, you truly have to love what you do to continue <laughs> doing it because this business I've seen it shift in so many ways, and now is probably the worst, the worst timing of any time in the, that I've been alive right. to try to start a band, to try to start getting attention musically. The, the shifts and the changes are so vast, and even in the past five years, it truly is. Uh, and we'll talk about all yeah, that we're stuff gonna, here. We're definitely going to talk about it, but let's start with with what you said, just said, because um, of course I first heard you with Ingve, and I want to just touch on that a little bit. But yeah. you. you I looked at your discography and there's so many things that you're on, just so many things. And what yeah. really struck me was the guest performances on all of these, on all of these albums and um, uh, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So if anybody, I mean, a billion people see Trans-Siberian Orchestra and, sure. and listen to the record. So people have definitely seen you, but that's more of like you're, you're part of, part of the show rather than it's part of a machine. Yeah. yeah. And, and even if you, you can even throw in my time with journey, I was in the band journey for 11 right. months. And during that time, more or less roughly came up to the figure. I sang in front of 900,000 people in the course of 11 <laughs> months. That's a lot of folks to plant your seed with. And when you walk away with not even 2% of that, uh, picking up a, as a continuation or you're following, et cetera, right. it really, you, you go, you scratch your head and you go, how am I playing to the tens of thousands of people every night they're cheering they're screaming they're singing along and then in the end you you look at your record sales and you go do they not know i'm releasing music what's right. going on out there right yeah so that's that's definitely the hard part hard part about it you know when i think about my podcast it's it's sometimes i just feel like i don't know why i get a huge bump in listenership and then some people aren't listening listening at all uh, on certain weeks. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a strange phenomena. Let's jump back to the Ingve question. You were very young when, when you hooked up with Ingve. just briefly, how did you get that gig? And did you feel like immediately you were on top of the world? Was that like the Absolutely, first big yeah. feeling? And you know what? It's, it's kind of, it's hard to do that story abridged, but I'll okay. basically I'll, I'll try to just in a nutshell, I, I was 18. I sent the tape in after I saw an ad on MTV that he was looking for a singer. He'd left Alcatraz yeah. and I loved Ingve at that point. I loved Alcatraz. I even yeah. liked his, uh, the Steeler album that he played on. Wasn't too crazy about the overall songs and the mixes and everything, but you can right. hear that this guy was a bat out of hell that was coming out and uh, going to change the guitar world forever. Right. And so I knew who he was. I was a big fan of his. So when I sent my demo in, of course, I was even the idea that he might be listening to my demo. I was 16 on the demo I sent him and I was 18 when I sent it. So uh, the idea that he would be listening to it 
whether he'd be listening to it and cringing or or actually saying, you know, let's give this guy a shot to to meet him, whatever, was a huge thing for me. Um, the day I got the call to go down and meet him, I uh, we, we just sat in a room with a with an acoustic guitar. He was in the recording studio. We right. he, we took he took a break. We went into a room that was just loaded with it. Would look like a like guitar center just threw up in that room. <laughs> there was one of the little ISO booths and guitars were laid out everywhere. So he picked up an acoustic. He said, "Okay, I got this song." He started playing the the the, the main uh, riffs, and he didn't really have any set uh, vocal ideas except for the chorus. Uh, during the verses, he's like, I don't know. And so he's just playing the, the rhythm along. I, I got used to what he was playing. I started kind of jotting down, oh, it's just like singing whatever came to mind, melody-wise. He goes, oh, that's pretty cool. Maybe you should write some lyrics down to match that so we can have something to, to listen to. So we kept going. We got to the chorus. And then he says, oh, that, that's pretty cool, man. Let's, okay, let's put it down on tape. I'm like, what? <laughs> so... We go. I go into the main vocal booth, which is in front of the control booth, where the you know where Ingve and the engineer and the manager were standing behind, and the song we were just going over in the other room acoustically was that song. Now oh it God. was already it was already recorded, and I'm with my mock lyrics and my my kind of jolted memory of what we just came up with, and dude, literally, I just found the cassette tape of that audition. I, I literally found it three days ago. And it's when I listened back to it, I, I thought, how the hell did I get a second, third or even fourth callback? Because it's awful. It's so bad. I, I wondered, what did he hear in me? What did he see in me? But all I remember about that day was I got to meet Ingve. Worst case scenario, I got to shake his hand, got right. to meet the guy. Right. And that was good enough for me. But the fact that he was actually excited, the manager was excited. And for the next three weeks, I was going over to his house every day, um, whether it be hanging with him in the band or or demoing other songs that would have ended up on the Marching Out album, which I also found those demos as well. It, it was Super a three cool. week process. It was nervous because there was no sense of you got the gig. You're the only one we're looking at. There was nothing. Right. There was no information. <laughs> it wasn't until I actually got officially got the gig. I was told by management that uh, out of the box of tapes that were sent in, it was hordes of tapes. Uh, apparently, they only heard two singers. One of them was the worst one in the box, which they did as a joke. They got the worst one to play for. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, it's a joke. We were just kidding. This is the guy we want you to check out. And that was my tape. Wow, that's so, so great. So now, you know, you, you get the job, you get the gig, and you're on records, and you're doing shows. and But you're a young guy. It, and this is yeah. your first real taste of Absolutely. success, right? And so I was only out of high school for a year. So not even a year when I got, yeah, no, just, not, just a year when I got that gig. So yeah, it was, I was 18. I was uh, a few months shy of my 19th birthday when I, I did Crazy. the recording, the, the two vocals on that first Ding Bay album, which were only two vocal songs. Right. The rest was all instrumental. Right. And then we immediately dove it. We were already in pre-production when that was being released. We were in pre-production for the next album, which was Marching Out. And that was my debut as the singer of Rising Force. So my, you know, when my friends and I listened to that first record, especially we were like, these songs are so good, but it need there needs to be more vocal songs, right? It was weird to listen to right. instrumentals, especially at the time. And then I'm a Viking came out and everybody was just like, oh my God, that song yeah. rules. That was a game changer. It was a game changer for all of us, including me. Right. And, and I, I'll back up to that first album. I mean, that album was being done while he was still in Alcatraz. So naturally a solo album from a guitar player 
was meant just right. to be right. a, a vehicle for him to show his level and intensity and level of guitar playing. Uh, it was not meant to to have singing on it, except for the two songs I sang on. And he was going to sing them originally. Okay. And and it, it's a funny story on how I even got that last minute, because I literally the night before I went into the studio to sing those two songs, I was inducted officially as the singer. And I was at Ingbe's house and I remember all the guys were there, the, the other <laughs> Swedish guys, they were all talking in Swedish, which was a normal thing. And when I was around them, it was 80% Swedish, 20% okay. English. And, but it looked like a serious conversation. You could see Ingbe kind of saying no and, and disagreeing with him, but I didn't know what they were talking about. Right. I find out later that the conversation was Jeff is officially in the band. Now Ingbe was supposed to sing those two songs that weekend. And they talked him into just let me go in there and just see how it works, see how it sounds. And that's exactly how he presented it to me. He said, hey, you know what? I'm going in to sing these songs this weekend. Come in on Saturday. We'll check We'll check you out on one of them. If, if it's good, we'll, we'll, you'll be on both of them. If not, I'm singing them. It was that cut and dry. Thank God. So, Thank God you ended yeah. up on them. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in. We, we, we killed it. We slayed it on the first one. And he loved it. And the next day we went in and got the second one. And so I, I did those two songs that weekend. And that was my... That was my debut to right. the world as an international singer with Ingrid Malmsteen. I uh, I talked to Jeff Duncan from Armored Saint, and one of the things that he said was, you know, he achieved some real success, right? It, and it just felt like it was never going to go back down. You know, he had this sense in his I, mind right. that it's great, and I got here, and now it just gets better forever, and nothing ever starts right. to slide back down the hill. And Brian Forsyth from Kicks talked about the same thing. So, yeah. you know, as... You know, when things went sour with with Ingve, was that something that you saw coming, or did you also have the sense things are great and they're just going to get more great? Oh, well, yeah, and and that was my delusion came from the fact that I wanted to tap into my music, my sound, my the things that I was doing before Ingve, post Ingve, pre Ingve, uh, even during Ingve, because I had my own style, my own things that I wanted to to do. Of course, my style melge with his I, I i knew what he needed and wanted and i knew how to give it to him but it didn't necessarily reflect what i was all about and so naturally i thought i i got that vehicle behind me i'm now going to be able to show the world what i'm all right, about right. and the world wasn't interested to be honest with you it took me so many years to finally convince the world that i'm not just a one-trick pony i'm not just a metal singer i'm not just a, a screamer or a shouter or a guitar player singer all these labels were thrown at me and I wanted, uh, I came before metal, before hard rock, I came from a world of pop, R&B, funk, and soul. Mm -hmm. I grew up Motown. I grew up Tom Jones. I grew up Jackson 5, Temptation, Stevie Wonder, uh, Sam Cooke. That was my world. Right. Even Bee Gees, Air Supply. I mean, you, <laughs> anything that was pop, anything that was, um, I, I guess, commercial AM radio at that right. time, growing right. up in the 70s, going into the early 80s, that was my world. I did not get into rock music until I heard the 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 phrasings of a Steve Perry or Bobby Kimball and Toto or Lou Graham and Foreigner. These guys had this white soul that they were injecting into rock music. Finally, that's what got me interested in rock. Right. You could hear all that soul, all that all these guys had the same influences I had growing up and they were able to inject it underneath hard rock guitars. That's when it finally clicked with me. And then eventually I got into the Judas Priest and the Iron Maidens right. and the Slayers of the world. Eventually from the fact that I first needed to accept that you could marry R&B with rock and roll. Right, right, right. And that's, and that's great. And I think that you've really done, I mean, 
again, going through if, if, uh, and I'll drop the links like I always do. If people go through some of your catalog, I think you'll hear more than just the the hard rock guy or the, or the metal guy. And in fact, for me, yeah. I never really associated with with metal metal. It's more like AOR or that rock sort of stuff because yeah. you, you could actually sing it, especially in the late 80s. It was all of the high pitch stuff, which I didn't really feel like you were doing. Like I, I just saw a picture of you and Jeff Tate um, from back in the day. Um, and yeah. I, I love Queens, right? But like all of that stuff was all of the vocals were kind of the same, but you weren't kind of like that you know so you yeah. stood out in that in that way um and this was this was i, I attribute a lot of that i mean a, a huge factor behind that was queen and freddie mercury mm-hmm. i always felt like i wanted to be i always felt like i was the kind of artist that couldn't be pigeonholed in the one style and one genre and i wanted to show that that was my my life's goal was to show the world that I'm a singer, singer. I'm not just a genre singer. Right, right. So just then a brief sojourn here. You've played with some of the best guitar players like ever. Axel Rudy Pell, and of course, uh, you were in Journey, Jason Beeler, Bumblefoot, all of these like really amazing guitar players. Is that just, is that something you seek out or are these guys, these like incredible guitar players looking for you? A, a little bit of both, actually. I mean, the, the Bumblefoots and the Jason Beelers, those are all things. I mean, Beeler and I cut our teeth together when he was absolutely unknown. He, okay. I brought him into the, the, a situation, a band called Talisman, mm-hmm. when Talisman first had its its, its first album, its first right. tour and everything. I, I found Jason through some other mutual friends and we gave him a shot because he was the, exactly what we needed at that time. Right. Uh, he obviously, he was like me. He had a whole different agenda, a whole nother side that he was ready to show the world. He just didn't know it yet. And, and so I watched Jason grow from where, where I found him to where he is now. And that's why our, we, we kind of brought okay. that back home right. together. And that's what we're right. continuing to do our things together. But something like Bumblefoot, I mean, that's, that the Sons of Apollo thing was something that was pieced together based on the personalities and the and basically the the careers that we've all had. We wanted to harness that into one band. It wasn't like, well, Bumblefoot said, well, we need to get Jeff because he sang with Ingve and he's sung with Neil Sean and Brian May and all these people. It, it nothing to do with that, more so to do with what they were looking for to complete that particular project. Now, somebody like Axel Rudy Pell, yes. He had his own career and he was working with the top singers of the top metals guys mm-hmm. at that time. And I got the call basically when one of them couldn't do a tour. And that was my entrance into his world. Okay. I did that tour from that. It snowballed into doing further albums and tours with him. So yeah, the, those kinds, they kind of fall on my lap. And for a while I had to, I had to say no to a lot of these guitar players that marquee guitar players, because it was turning into exactly that. Everybody saw me in the beginning as the singer for a guitar player. And it's, I was starting to be pigeonholed into that level where I'm, I'm applying myself 1000% lyrically, musically, uh, performance wise, et cetera. But the marquee uh, interest is going towards right. one person. Right. I right. want to be with people where we can share all of that together. Where we can 
we can grow together and we can build it together and we can enjoy the, the reap the rewards together. And I don't mean money. I mean, the rewards right. of, of, success, advanced, of, right. of yeah. notoriety, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Are you getting that with, with sons of Apollo? I just have to say, I, I love sons of Apollo. I have all, all of this stuff. And I do want to touch on the, the live performance, I think in, in Bulgaria, I think it Bulgaria, is. Yeah. Um, but so that band, I can't recommend it enough to anybody that digs that it's, it's not even metal. It's just, like hard rock with awesome vocals and everybody sings in that band and the harmonies are awesome and the yeah. songs are good you know so when you're when you're talking about this idea of people the band camaraderie about the music is that kind of what you're 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 pointing to something like sons of apollo oh god yes and and sons of apollo was a strange uh it, it was a strange build up from the from the from the jump because those guys already had the band together they already had a band together it was uh derek mike and billy they were doing a, a four-piece thing with tony mcalpine and they did two records all instrumental and it was at, it was during a tour where my band soto was opening up for winery dogs mm -hmm. in south america that Mike and Mike Portnoy and I've known each other and respect each other for the last, you know, again, 30, 40 years. Um, we've known of, of each other, but we were never, we were just acquaintances. We were never like buddies and hung out and all that, but because we had a mutual respect for one another. And I was, I had my band on that tour. He was finally paying attention and list. I would see him on the side of the stage, watching the band. He was also very good friends with my then bass player, David Z, God rest his soul. And so I thought Mike was just there supporting David, right. you know, watching the show, just kind of getting an idea what what we were about and what we were doing. But he was really out there scouting me because they decided then and there that they were going to do the next, uh, what was it, PSMS was the name of the project, right. that they were going to do the next album with vocals. And in uh, my birthday, uh, I, I believe it was, I was actually at the airport flying out for the TSO tour. I got a call from Mike saying, hey, I'm calling you to tell you uh, what my birthday present is to you. And I thought, oh, cool, send me a drum kit or something. He goes, I'm, we're basically giving you the, uh, the front man position. We want to do the next album with vocals and uh, it's yours for the taking. There was no audition. There was no, let's see what it sounds like. And that to me was one of the biggest validations to my career and what I've done since the beginning is that somebody like Portnoy with the powerhouse of those musicians would just call me out of the blue and say, the gig is mine with, without writing a song, hearing a song. It's, it was just a trust thing. It was a validation and a trust thing. And we, as we move into the beginning of 2017, the shift was made to bring Bumblefoot in because they wanted more of a hard rock. As great as Tony McAlpine right. is, they knew he was more on the jazz fusion classical side. Right. They thought we'd have a fight, a better fighting chance to have somebody that was more in the hard rock arena, even though Bumblefoot is just on another planet as a guitar player, <laughs> that he also understands the, the, uh, the importance and the parameters of hard rock right. that could right. actually be properly uh i guess surrounding us right and that's how it worked out and, and then of course we had to find a name because psms didn't work with the four initials of the original right. guys and that's where sons of apollo came about cool so the the live album i think is is really really good again you uh, i knew that it was recorded in in bulgaria in that really cool venue yeah. um with the with the orchestra and all of that mm -hmm. so i you know just generally 
I just want to hear how awesome that was. And then I want to talk about something you started writing about in December, which is getting older and being a vocalist and this, like the mental stress that comes along sure. with that. Um, but let's start with, I mean, that venue looked fucking bananas. It just was yeah. amazing. I'll tell you right now that the history behind that venue and even that country, that's uh, Bulgaria is one of the oldest countries in European history, in Europe's history. That Bulgaria was one of the uh, first developed countries, I believe, back in the BC. And that particular amphitheater that we played in was left and desolate. It was basically covered in mountains of rocks and, and dirt and everything. It was basically buried. And they dug it up when they were trying, when they were going to develop portions of that that city it was it's plovdiv bulgaria and they dug it up and they realized oh my god look at as they kept digging up they realized it was still intact right. and it was an actual original amphitheater that was built you know bc yeah. before christ yeah. which is crazy so instead of just annihilating and getting rid of it they restored it they they scaffolded and they basically brought it back to life they the acoustics and this is why certain things really work. Red Rocks in Colorado, yeah. certain amphitheaters are based on natural acoustics of whatever the mountains or whatever the surroundings right. keep the sounds. Because when you, you go see an amphitheater or an outdoor show, the sounds is traveling, the Going wind's moving. Right. The sound, yeah. yeah, and it it can sound like hell. It, it can sound horrible. It, it could be the worst nightmare for a sound guy. But this particular place naturally sounded, it, it could actually capture a theater, an indoor theater kind of vibe. So they decided to, to, to restore it. And a lot of mainly operas and classical shows and all that were, that's what they were using until bands like Asia. Uh, I know Devin Townsend did a live thing there, a live release there. Yeah. A lot of bands started using that. A lot of rock bands started using that as a, a forum for their live performances and uh, live DVDs. And the manager we were working with at the time said, we should do that there. It was discussed with, of course, Mike's brain is always clicking and turning <laughs> of what we can do to make this really stand out, especially since we only have one record out. We have right. one record. We're already doing a live album. Right. Come on. <laughs> so this is where Mike said, if we're using an orchestra, we're using backing vocals. Let's throw in some classic covers that would really, right. really emphasize in the fact that we have this behind us. And he sent a laundry list of songs for all of us to pick and choose from that would work in that setting. And I, you know, I was the last one that basically said out of the ones that were left, I'm like, I want to do these out of, out of all that. And that's what we set out to do. And that's why there are as many covers as there are on it. We didn't want to release a live album with just the first album under our belt. We knew we could make this an event. I've watched the Diary of a Madman video on YouTube approximately a million times uh, because, (laughs) (laughs) because it's so good. And honestly, I think you kill the vocal, right? It's, it just sounds amazing, but then, and this is what I want to get into. You go to YouTube and then there's just, people are just awful, right? They're just dicks and just right in the most awful things for no, for no good reason. And, you know, I see comments like, you know, Jeff's off or whatever. And it's just like, I don't know that you're hearing the same thing that everybody else is hearing because so like, how does that, and and again, going into this post you wrote about getting older and the struggles like mentally that you can have with, with being a vocalist, your instrument is your body, right? So you have to keep it together. Um, So how, how do those things impact you? 
Well, I mean, I used to let a lot of that stuff bother me. Now it's now it's more fun to get involved and and kind of agree with them or or add to it because at some point, if if you don't have enough, if you, you don't have the thick skin to not let it bother you, then you have to find a way to, to I, I guess, to kind of give it back. I, I I try not to even read that stuff anymore, but. Sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes you put it, you put something out and you're looking to see the validation. You're looking to see the positive comments and those are all great and everything. But for every 100 positive comments, that one negative one is the one that always sticks. And you naturally as an artist want to try to erase and rub and flatten all of that out. You do not want to live your entire career defending yourself. You don't want to have to make excuses for yourself. And so, yeah, I kind of I was watching that Steve Perry interview with um, with Dan Rather. Mm-hmm. And when the when he spoke about that, I, it, it literally the hairs on my arm stood up and I literally got goosebumps because he was defining exactly what we go through as singers. Every singer on the planet, every everyone from that's going out there now and realizing how difficult it is to keep healthy and keep your voice in shape mm-hmm. so you're singing exactly the same every night or close to it to the ones who got to the end end of their careers they're basically running across the finish line and they have to pop prednisone just to be be able to get through a show every one of us struggles with the ideal of it's that love hate between uh, your, between your voice and your body because you're expected to sound perfect every night, but your your voice is not going to do that. It's fickle. It's it's got its own brain. It's got its own. You know, if it's tired, if it's dehydrated, if it's blah blah blah, the list goes on and on. Right. Right. You battle with that uh, of of even wanting to do this anymore any further based on the fact that I can't do what they expect me to do. I can't do what they remember me doing. So what do you do? What I've done is I just altered it. Everything that I'm doing now on records, on on anything I'm releasing that I know I have to tour with, I'm being realistic and knowing that I can pull that off. Right. On things that I'm still singing like I did in the high heavens back in the 80s and 90s, I know I'm not touring with that. So I tell everybody, if you want me to sing that high, you want me to do it like this? We are not stepping one foot on any stage to do these songs live. I can in a controlled environment where I have a microphone here and I can punch myself in and work and tweak it. I can spend two hours on it. I'm not going to get that two hours to pull off a perfect performance on a three minute song live. So I'm sorry. So you, you, you balance the two in terms of studio versus live. And this is another trick. Another thing I learned from Freddie Mercury. He never, maybe early on in his career, maybe early on in Queen's career, they, he was able to pull off a lot of what he did on the records live. But as he got older, he didn't he didn't change the range. He didn't change his approach and his uh, attack on how he was singing. But live, he had to because there was no way he could reproduce that. There was no way he could replicate it. Everyone knew he was a heavy smoker. Everyone knew he loved his vodka. And when you have the late night, no sleep and staying up late partying or or you you gave it too much the night before you have nothing left the day after you're sick climate altitude you add all these elements in there he knew he had to find other ways of reproducing that stuff live and i learned a very early lesson i used to actually criticize and go wow how is he not why is he not able to do it like the record and then it wasn't until i had my own experiences that i realized you have to find ways to bluff it you you have to uh, fake it to make it, I guess. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, 
I've always been an absolute extremist in the in the first easily the first 25 years of my career or my my life as a recording artist. I was an extremist and I have to be able to pull that off live the way I pulled it off in the studio. Right. Now, not so much. Right. I just I literally I, I find ways to get through it. I, I have in my band Soto or the uh, the JSS bands that I go out there with. I always have somebody who can sing as high as me, if not higher. And I assign them those high okay. notes and I sing a lower <laughs> harmony. You find ways to bring it right, forth right. without having to using backing tracks or miming and all that shit. Right, so. <laughs> right. Cool. That's, that's awesome to, to hear how, you know, you're trying to, to grow old gracefully. We're all getting older, right? None of us, none of us are getting younger despite right. what we try to do. So finding those ways that, that continue to work and you can have your expression, I think are really important. Uh, two things here before I let you go quickly. One is um, I think it's important to talk ab about this if I have the platform. And so my, my question is, as a, as a person of color, I know that you're of Puerto Rican descent, you know, yeah. working through the, the music industry, has it, have you ever felt like, you know, you haven't gotten a fair shake or people treat you shitty just because of the slightly darker uh, hue of your complexion? Absolutely. I, I, of course, I went through it, especially in the 80s when uh, when this style, of the, the hair bands or whatever you want to call them, the style, even the genre was was flooded with so many bands that were, a lot of their front men were of, Caucasian descent mm -hmm. they had green eyes or blue eyes and they had blonde hair. And, you know, I didn't fit in that mold. I, especially starting with a, with an artist like King Bay Malmsteen who was regarded, which is strange. I, I'll, to this day, I'll never understand it. Ingbe was put in the category of the slayers and the Metallicas and, <laughs> and Raven and all those really heavier bands. Right. He, I don't know why and how he was put into that category, I always saw him more in the category of like the deep purple and the Uli Roth and yeah. the scorpions uh, and, and that's sort of yeah, UFO. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's deep purple. I always saw him on that side rainbow. And so because he was put in that category and I was a singer in the very early stages of him being put in that yeah. category, I was automatically put in the same category of the, uh, Tom, the, the, the Slayer singer, Tom, uh, you Tom got, Ryan, uh, yeah. um, um, what was uh, the original singer of Armored Saint? I'm um, no, not, the, not the original singer. Um, John. Boyd. Oh my God. No, I'm not talking about, yeah. Well, there were some Spanish. Is, oh, uh, oh, there's, there were so right, many right, bands right. that were in that cat right. and they were kind of looked upon as, uh, I, I want to. I want to compare it to that, like race music from black music. That they, they wouldn't play blacks on the radio until artist, white artists would actually redo those songs, the same songs, right. but they would become hits. Right. But they wouldn't give that opportunity to the black artist. Right. Right. And in a in a very small, minor, very lowercase way, it was kind of that thing. They were more uh, Hispanic looking uh death angel or i, I believe right. filipino filipino right yeah yeah that's a good point yeah. into yeah. that category of you you fit here you'll never be here you'll never get up to that level of course there, there were exceptions steven is spanish um i believe vince neal is half spanish but they didn't come across as with that look more as much as i did right. and it was my it was my ideal i need to shift how people see me first because my talent isn't going to do it enough. It's not going to do it alone. Mm -hmm. I have to make sure that I kind of fit and look the image as well as singing it. Because 
the way I looked when I was in, it would not have worked for me in terms of trying to get and gain that side of notoriety had I not done something about it. So I was doing the things like adding the, the bleach, uh, the bleached hair on, on portion of my hair. Uh, I grew it out longer. I was wearing different clothing. I tried to remold myself to, to kind of fit musically what I was trying to rebrand myself. Right. right. Okay. Okay. And, and these days, I mean, again, the, you're a, a known professional singer now for, for many, many years. Has that sort of stuff essentially gone away? Uh, do you feel more comfortable just being you uh, on the scene? Oh, yeah. I, th that's probably the best part of what I'm doing and what I'm still doing. I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I've been doing this long enough that my name and my reputation speaks for itself. I don't have to, I don't have to keep trying to convince people of who I am and what I am and what I can do, what I've done. It's all out there. It's it's. And there, like you said, at the beginning of this, uh, this discussion, um, all you have to do is look at the discography. And from that, people now have a certain level of respect and expectation of who I am and what I do. Right. And it's absolutely helped me continue. And it's even given me the, the a reason to want to continue because people are now accepting what I do and I can kind of ride it out, so to speak. Yeah. I'm still as hungry for it. I'm as, I'm as hungry now as I was when I was 18. <laughs> I'm still as driven as I was when I was 18. But the difference is I don't have to go chase it anymore. Right. They, they kind of find me and then it, it just kind of happens more organically these days as opposed to me having Having to prove who I am. What is Jeff Scott Soda all about? But right. uh, I can send you about six hundred albums and tell you what I'm all <laughs> right. about. So, so then, last <laughs> thing here, you're doing these huge shows with with TSO, and you know, as you talked about, and then you yeah. that doesn't necessarily transfer over to um, Soto or JSS, but you're still doing those things, right? So, you have music coming up. You're going to go on tour. You're going to do all of these things. How are you riding that? Like those waves of here's a there's a million people that are watching TSO, but it's not necessarily for me, but now I'm going to go do this right. thing that is about me, you know? So how do right. you balance all of that stuff? Well, the best part of doing something like TSO or any of the other things that are not normal or normally in my own wheelhouse uh, musically is that I get to borrow, beg, borrow and steal from all of them. Mm -hmm. I, I get to, TSO was probably one of the last things I would have ever been interested in in career wise, because I'm not a musical theater guy and they have a very rock theater uh, vibe about them. It wasn't until I started working with Paul O'Neill, God rest his soul as well, who, who basically said you were born to do this. I heard it from other people like you, you should try getting into this and doing more uh, musical theater kind of thing. It never really it, it gave me nothing. It gave me no charge, but something like TSO because it leaned more on the rock side of things gave me a little more interest in checking it out and seeing what I could do with it and for it. And working with Paul, he put me in a whole new stratosphere of how to think when I'm singing, how to, how to present the songs, how to actually portray the songs characteristically, personality wise. It's not all about just being up there and being a rock star. It's, it's, there's some, there's an element of selling the songs as an actor, as a, as making sure you portray the lyrics in every single detail. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from him and I took that from him and I'm able to put it in, in the other aspects of life. So the things that I normally wouldn't have done through my life, I learned from, and now I'm able to put that in the things that I, I was missing in my own life. Right. Cool. So, so what's happening with JSS and, and, and Soto now, are you getting ready to release stuff? Are you going out to do shows provided the pandemic ends at some point here in the near future? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of makeup stuff uh, this year. A uh, majority of the year is making up stuff that was canceled in 2020 okay. and 21 and hoping that it's going to continue forward. So far, so good. Uh, and the rest, yes, I have a new solo album coming out in, in the spring. And I'm not necessarily touring as a solo artist for, for those albums okay. at the moment. Uh, I'm mainly, like I said, making up stuff. Sons of Apollo is making up stuff. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just going to keep I'm, I'm just going to keep doing what I can based on what is available to us. What's the interest out there? The band Soto has been on hiatus for a couple of years now, and we're talking about re, uh, re-emerging with, uh, with a new album. And uh, so there's a lot of great stuff coming up. In the meantime, I'm just keeping as busy and as focused as possible that cool. uh, I don't want people to forget about yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this show, Jeff. Uh, I want to thank everyone who's listening. Please continue to do so. Please like, subscribe, tell your friends and your enemies about the show. Give us a rate on Apple Podcasts. All of that stuff is helpful. Uh, 100% go check out uh, Jeff Scott Soto. If you just go to his webpage, you can look at the discography and you will see something that you have definitely heard. And then you can <laughs> check, out, check out more stuff. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been great talking to you. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you for having me. Man.